Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 712 with Dane Jensen. Dane has some masterful perspectives on pressure, how to dial it down or up as necessary to help you get to optimal performance. Dane had so much wisdom and we're having so much fun chatting that we actually ran out of time and didn't get to hear his favorite things. So apologies for the sort of abrupt conclusion, but that just means Dane had so much good stuff. So you'll learn one, the equation that explains why we feel pressure. Two, why time management will not solve your workload problems. And three, the key question that makes us good at pressure. So if you want to check out the show notes with a transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP712. And here's Dane's story. Dane Jensen is the CEO of The Third Factor, an acclaimed speaker, an instructor at Queens University and the University of North Carolina, a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, and the author of The Power of Pressure. Dane oversees Third Factor's delivery of leadership development programs to leading firms across North America, including SAP, RBC, Uber, Twitter, the USGA, and others. He teaches in the full-time and executive MBAs at Queen Smith School of Business in Canada and is an affiliate faculty with UNC Executive Development at the Keenan Flagler Business School in Chapel Hill. In addition to his corporate work, Dane works extensively with athletes, coaches, leaders, and boards across Canada's Olympic and Paralympic sports system to enhance national competitiveness. He has worked as an advisor to senior executives in 23 countries on five continents. Big thanks to Dane for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Dane. Dane, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Hey, thanks so much, Pete. It's great to be here. Okay, we're talking about pressure, so I'm going to put some pressure on you right from the get-go, if I may, and say, Dane, I'd love for you to kick us off with a riveting and instructional story that tees up some of the concepts of your book, The Power of Pressure, Why Pressure Isn't the Problem, It's the Solution. Yeah, I think one of the beautiful things about how I wrote this book is it was all story driven. You know, I asked as many interesting people as I could find one question, which is what's the most pressure you've ever been under. And I found out that this question is like a magic portal. Like on the other side of this question, no matter who you ask this question of, there is a really, really interesting story. And so I'll tell you a story about a woman named Jen, who is a manager at a government agency. And when I asked her about the most pressure she'd ever been under, 
she flashed back to this period in her career where she was responsible for planning the communication of an organizational restructuring. And so two agencies had been merged. Everybody knew there were going to be layoffs. There was going to be a restructuring. It had been a couple of months at this time, so nervous anticipation was building. And then finally, the the day arrived, this incredibly well-orchestrated day that Jen and her team had been working on for a couple of months. And so Jen's morning was spent having four one-on-one conversations with people who were being let go. So, you know, pretty tough morning. And then she raced across town to the conference center where they were about to kick off six simultaneous regional meetings where they were going to announce the strategy and, and the restructuring that was happening. And so she parks herself in the biggest region. About half the people are there in person. Half of them are joining remotely through Zoom or by phone. And it is 1 minute to 1 p.m. when the, the meeting's going to kick off and the AV fails completely. <laughs> nobody can dial in, nobody can hear, nobody can see. The regional president looks at Jen, because she, you know she's the person who planned this. She looks around for an AV team. There is no AV team in the room. She tears out of the room, down the hallway, and she decides to take a shortcut through a stairwell. She gets into the stairwell, the door closes behind her, and she hears a click. <laughs> she runs over to the door, grabs it, locked. Looks down at her phone, she has no cell service because of the concrete walls. She is locked inside of a fire escape with no cell service and 600 people on the other side who are wondering if they still have jobs. And I use this as a microcosm of when you ask people what's the most pressure they've ever been under, you get an unbelievable range of life experiences. And so the first insight for me from this is when you talk to Jen about what the moment was like of peak pressure, Right When she realized that the meeting was falling apart and she tore out of the room and was running towards the stairwell, she talks about how, and these are her words, my focus narrowed to the point where I could not see what to do next. It was like my mind was racing, but it wasn't computing anything. Yeah, And I think this to me is a wonderful kind of tee up for the problems of pressure. We're going to talk about why pressure can be the solution. But the real problem of pressure is when it gets incredibly intense, it actually shrinks our world dramatically. Our attention starts to tunnel. We can access less of our expertise. We can take in less information from the external environment. And so this example for me really tees up what are we trying to solve for when it comes to pressure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is powerful. And so let's talk about that, that problem and what it does to us. And you've got an interesting equation in terms of importance, uncertainty, and volume our components and how does this work in terms of, because I, I was thinking about your equation as you told that story. It's like, okay, we got some importance. Okay. We got some uncertainty. Okay. We got a lot. <laughs> so yep. what is that perfect storm? It's like, yep, this is what pressure feels like and where it comes from. Well, and this was the first mission in writing the book was as I asked more and more people this question, I got the totality of life itself back. I mean, you know, <laughs> we had you know lots of people talking about, I guess, standard pressure moments, so big presentations, a critical sales meeting, uh, an entrance exam, a job interview, you know, so that kind of stuff definitely came up. But then we also had stories uh, of people, you know, a guy who went for a swim and, and all of a sudden realized he was too far from shore and the tide was going out and he wasn't sure if he'd be able to get back. Uh, people who were carrying demanding jobs while dealing with, with dying parents. And One of my first tasks was to kind of look at this incredible range of human experience and start to go, okay, what is similar across these very different experiences? 
And I think that's where the equation came from is to say, okay, as different as these things are, when we talk about pressure, all high pressure situations are characterized by some combination of three things. So, you know, the first thing that has to be there for us to feel pressure as humans is important, right? If what I'm doing doesn't matter to me, if it's not important, if the outcome doesn't matter to me in some way, I'm not going to feel pressure. But importance alone doesn't create pressure. We also need uncertainty because no matter how much something matters to me, if it's certain, if the outcome is clear, it's not really going to create that much pressure. And so we really, as human beings, where we start to feel the experience of pressure, which is really an internal experience, it's a response to an external circumstance, that we feel it at that intersection of, hey, this really matters to me, and I don't know how it's going to turn out. And then volume really is the multiplier, right? So it's like, as human beings, yeah, we've had to exist in important, uncertain situations since the dawn of time. You know, in the modern world, I think what creates the grind of pressure is just the sheer volume of tasks, of decisions, of distractions that kind of surround our important, uncertain moments. And so these three things can combine in very different ways, Pete, right? So Jen's situation for me is a perfect example of, of what we talk about as peak pressure moments, which are like violent collisions of importance and uncertainty, right? Like acutely important. I've been working on this for months. The regional president's looking right at me. This is falling apart and tons of uncertainty. There are other situations when we talk about the long haul of pressure or the grind, those tend to be less about like hugely important, highly uncertain and more just about grinding volume, right? I'm just carrying a ton of uncertainty through a long period of time and it gets really heavy. A lot of the stories and experiences I heard from COVID they tend to fall a little bit more into that pattern of just, you know, constant uncertainty and just grinding volume. But those three things are what kind of combine to, to create pressure for us. Okay. And so that, that's good to know right there. And by thinking about importance for a while, there's sometimes I feel pressure and it's because something's really important to me. And I realize there are many other people for whom this would not be a big deal. And it's, it would not be important to them, but it's important to me. And it's almost like I wish I cared less. <laughs> so I would, there'd be less importance and I'd feel less pressure. Yeah. And so, Dave, I don't know. I have a feeling that's not the solutions uh, <laughs> you're going to be putting forward. But I, I've been there. It's like, ah, could I care about this a little bit less so I could feel less pressure? Yeah. Listen, man, I think you're onto something there. Like, I think what I learned is that every one of these parts of the equation, right, importance, uncertainty, and volume, they, they are all kind of double agents. Pressure itself is kind of a double agent, right? I mean, you know, where do more world records get set than anywhere else in sport? At the Olympics, right? Because there's pressure. Pressure is energy, right? It actually can help. And, you know, we know that pressure can also be dangerous if it's left unchecked. It can lead to burnout and uh, stress leave and all that, you know, that stuff uh, that we see in the growing conversation on workplace mental health. So, you know, I think all of these things, what's interesting about them is it's a little bit of a matter of dosage, right? So importance, uh, just to, to build off of what you're talking about, we've heard for years, you got to start with why. You got to get really clear on why something matters to you, the purpose behind what you're doing. And actually, that is a really important part of the long haul of pressure, right? If I'm going through the grind of 12 really tough months or raising a child, or like I got to really have a line of sight to... Why does this matter to me? You know, how is this helping me grow? How is what I'm doing contributing? How is this bringing me closer to people that I care about? You know, the big stuff. And to your point, when we kind of cross from the, the, the long haul of pressure into these acute peak pressure moments, 
actually the issue typically isn't that I don't have a line of sight to my why. It's that like the why is crushing me. Like I am just overwhelmed by how important this presentation, you know. So I, you know, one of the tools that I introduce in the book is this ability to kind of pivot a little bit when it's so, you know, if you take a very simple example that hopefully some of your, your listeners can relate to, if I'm prepping for a big presentation, let's say it's a sales presentation that I've got to give, I actually want to, during the preparation phase, consciously focus on importance, right? The fact that, you know, there's a commission check at stake here, that this could be an input to an early promotion, that this is a good test of my abilities, that I can contribute revenue to the bonus pool, whatever the, you know, whatever it is that makes this matter to me. When I'm about to step into the room and actually deliver that presentation, I have to consciously switch my attentional focus using one question, which is what is not at stake for me here? Mm. What are the important things in my life that will not change regardless of the outcome of this presentation? I want to focus on the fact that I'm still going to have a job. I'm still going to have the love of my friends and family. My colleagues will still respect me. I'll still have, you know, because those are the things, those unchanging things, that's what frees me up to perform. If I carry the commission check and the early promotion and, you know, if I carry all that into the presentation, it's going to be a disaster. So, so you're absolutely right. There are situations where the real question I want to be focused on is, what makes this a little less important? Because often we get fixated and we expand the stakes mentally as we're heading into those moments. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that, that's beautiful. So much there in terms of a distinction between preparation and performance, like play the game a little bit differently. And then we have the choice to dial it up or down in terms of, oh, I'm bored and don't really feel like preparing. Well, you know, <laughs> this commission check's at stake. Yep. You increase the importance and the pressure versus I'm freaking out a little bit. It's the big moment. It's like, well, we can decrease the, yep. the importance and pressure. Like, hey, well, you know what? My wife and kids aren't going to leave me. They'll still be here, even if I... Uh, <laughs> just uh, scream obscenities <laughs> at everybody in the room and, and botch it as badly as one could possibly botch it. My wife and kids will still be there, as will my friends. Yep. And so that is it's good. And even simple anchors, Pete, I have a vivid memory of a day that I spent in my consulting career. And you know, this is going to sound like a very first world problem. I was consulting to a company in Northern Italy. And I had parked my car outside of the hotel the morning before I had to go give a critical presentation to the senior leadership at this organization. And I woke up the next morning and the entire square outside of my hotel had been converted to a farmer's market. Hmm. And every car that had been in the square that night before had been towed. And I don't know if you've ever gone through the wonderful experience of trying to navigate the Italian auto impound system uh, as mm -hmm. somebody who doesn't speak Italian, but this was not the way I wanted to start my day before a critical presentation uh, to a big client. And the thing that really got me through it was in that moment going, you know what, one way or another at six o'clock tonight, I'm going to be sitting down eating dinner and having a cold beer. And nothing that happens in the next three hours is going to change that. <laughs> it's going to be six o'clock, we're going to eat our meal, we're going to have a drink, and we're going to go on with the day. And so I do think because our attention can run away from us, it's like a spotlight, right? You know, what we focus our attention on, it comes right into the foreground and everything else recedes into the background. A lot of this is about consciously directing that spotlight to, okay, what are the things that I need to focus on right now? that maybe are getting lost in the glare of, you know, where my attention is kind of gravitationally getting pulled. Mm. 
Huh, boy, Dane, so much excellence here in terms of, of what's not at stake in consulting. And, and that brings me back to some stories where, you know, I was new in consulting and making some errors, which was embarrassing for me and, <laughs> and the team. And, you know, I, I had I had an awesome manager who you know, was shared some perspective in terms of like, hey, well, you know, it's just work and uh, nobody's dying. But yeah, you know, you made some mistakes that kind of hurt our credibility there. And, and uh, so we got to get a plan. Yeah. <laughs> And so I, I appreciate that perspective. Like that's what happened. Yep. I was new. I made some mistakes. Totally. But no one was dead. And, <laughs> and uh, which is not true of some professions. No. Nope. You make mistakes. People people may die. But you know I make mistakes in my spreadsheet, and it's just a little annoying and embarrassing. Yeah. 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 Cool. So we talked about when you feel the pressure, your mind can run away from you. You can narrow your focus. And some tools there, we, we talked about dialing up or down the importance via thinking about what's at stake, what's not at stake. Any tips on on how we move the levers of uncertainty and volume? Yeah, well, and I think your tee up here, which is, hey, it's just PowerPoint. There are some situations where the stakes are life and death. And that's often a question that I get when I talk about importance as a standalone topic is like, well, what if it really is a life and death situation? Yeah. Is it really going to work to think about what's not at stake here? And the answer is not not really. I mean, so there are I think of the equation kind of like a bag of golf clubs or a set of chef's knives, right? If you are truly in a, a high pressure situation where lives are at stake, you're probably going to want to focus less on importance and more on uncertainty. Because uncertainty as human beings, we experience uncertainty in a very similar fashion to physical pain. And, and they, you know, Olivia Fox Cobain wrote about this in her great book, The Charisma Myth, uh, that, that the brain, actually similar parts of the brain light up under uncertainty as they do under physical pain. And so if you look at kind of the evolutionary biology of all of this, uh, the human beings who craved uncertainty, you know, who heard the kind of rustle in the bushes and were like, oh, I wonder what that is. And yeah, you know, it, they didn't tend to do too well. So most of us are not particularly comfortable with uncertainty. And so when we are in these peak pressure moments, similar to importance, in peak pressure, the goal with uncertainty is quite straightforward. It's we want to redirect our attention from what we can't control to what we can control and begin to act as soon as humanly possible. Because the second we start to act on uncertainty, the second we start to make progress, that's when the pressure from uncertainty begins to abate. Mm -hmm. And this really got landed for me that, you know, I heard a wonderful metaphor from a guy named Martin Reeder, who's an Olympic beach volleyball player. Uh, He represented Canada in the 2016 Rio games. And he talked about how when you're playing beach volleyball, there is so much that is out of your control that, you know, the opponents are out of your control. The officials are out of your control. The crowd's out of your control. The weather's out of your control. uh, You're literally standing on shifting sands, which a metaphor for uncertainty, but also a literal thing. And he said, the one thing that you can control in volleyball is the serve. When you are standing behind the service line and you have the ball, that's the one time that you're in control. And so he tells the story about when they had to qualify for the 2016 games they knew they were going to have to go into Mexico and beat the Mexican team in order to qualify. And he said, we knew this was going to be really tough because the Mexican team was a good team. It was going to be a really hostile crowd, which sometimes influences the officiating. And so he said, for six months, my partner and I, we practiced this very non-traditional serve. And he said, at a critical moment in the third game, I moved to this complete other spot on the service line. And I, I served a ball they had no idea was coming for an ace. And that that really punched our ticket to Rio, to the Olympics. And so he said, you know, 
since that moment, whenever I find myself in a situation where things are really out of my control, I ask myself, what's your serve? What is your serve in this situation? I talked about the spotlight and redirecting attention. This to me is another one of those great attentional anchors to go, hey, with everything else that's out of my control, what is my serve in this situation? And I think one of the things we want to recognize is no matter what the situation is, you might ask yourself that question, go like, I got no serve. This whole thing is out of my control. There are a couple of things that we always have control over that are permanent serves for us as human beings, right? So one of them is breathing. Mm-hmm. No matter what situation you're in, breathing is a serve. When I start to get my physiology under control, when I move my breathing down into my diaphragm, when I slow it down to five to six breaths a minute, that's a way that I can start to access certainty and control. You can't have a racing mind with a calm body. If you can get your body under control, it's very hard to have a racing mind. You know, the second thing that we always have control over that can always be a serve is, is perspective. Right, Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning, he, he talked about how the, through his time in the Nazi concentration camps, the Nazis could take pretty much everything. They could take food, they could take clothing, they could take shelter. Uh, he said the one thing they couldn't take was my ability to choose to see what I was going through as a meaningful experience. And he talked about that as the last human freedom. Right, it, That ability to choose how we are going to look at what we're going through, that's another serve that we always have. Right, that, That's always within our control. That's always something that we can act on. And so routine is another one. You look at people in sport, you know, before a tennis player serves the ball, what do they do? They they have a a constant routine that allows them to exert control. So I do think when it comes to uncertainty, A, the question, what's my serve? But then B, having a couple of go-to serves, so to speak, where you go, these are the things that I'm going to do that are going to serve as beachheads of control uh, under peak pressure. That can really pay dividends when you're walking into high-stakes situations. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dan, that's, that is powerful stuff in terms of, and then that question, what is my serve? I think when you really visualize that in terms of literally what is the equivalent of a ball in my hand that I have the choice of, of what to do with right now, that's huge. And so your, your choices in terms of how you interpret and view things, how you, you breathe, that's, that's excellent. So let's hear about volume then. Yeah, so volume volume's an interesting one because it's easy to react in a way that seems like it's going to help that actually ends up hurting. And, and, and that's time management. I think when volume is the dominant thing creating pressure, and I, I think, frankly, for many of us, volume is the dominant thing creating pressure. Uh, you know, when I talk to people in organizations and you know I do a lot of workshops on this stuff and one of the questions we'll ask is okay well what you know what are the things right now that are taking away the fun keeping you rushing you know causing you anxiety and inevitably the answer is some version of not enough time or too many priorities which are kind of just you know flip sides of the same thing yeah and so i think when volume is creating pressure it makes intuitive sense to turn to time management. It's like, okay, the issue is I've got too much stuff to do. The solution is I need to become more efficient and, you know, get it done. Like that, that's how I'm going to make progress. That's how I'm going to start to exert control and tamp down uncertainty. The challenge with time management is that time management is a trap, right? If you think about people who get really good at time management, what do they get? Do they get more volume or less volume? They get more volume. 
Right, right? Oh, oh, because they're entrusted with, hey, well, great job, Dane. You really crushed that. Here's some more stuff well, exactly, for you. You know, like, you know, <laughs> you know most of us are, are working in organizations where if you do a really good job of, it's like, you know what, we're going to be so efficient that we can shrink our meetings from, you know, an hour to half an hour. That's going to open up 1 to 2 p.m. on my calendar. The second 1 to 2 p.m. opens up on your calendar. What happens? Someone's like, boom, calendar invite. Like I noticed you have a free hour from one to two. Like it'd be great if you could join this project kickoff, right? It's like putting up a signal flare that's like, hey, I have some free time. And so the example I always use is there's this wonderful Dilbert cartoon where Catbert, the consultant, is talking to the manager of the boss and he says, you know, hey, how do you guys reward your high performers around here? And the boss says, oh, we load them up with work until they become average performers. <laughs> and, and to me, that, that's time management. It's like digging a hole at the beach, right? The bigger the hole you dig, the more water is going to rush in there to fill it. And this is not to crap on time management. Time management is a really important productivity tool, but it's not a solution to pressure. And those are two different things, right? Time management absolutely helps with productivity but it doesn't alleviate pressure because it just allows you to get more done. It actually allows you to increase the volume that you're faced with. And so when we talk about volume, there's really two imperatives that, that I, that I kind of start to dig into. The first is, listen, if we are going to choose a high pressure life, which, which I suspect most people listening, if you've taken the time to, to opt into a podcast like this one, you are choosing a, a high performing life. And that's going to be accompanied by volume. And so we have to take care of the physical platform that allows us to handle a high volume life, right? That's sleep, that's nutrition, that's movement. So that, so that stuff has to be there so that we're not just exhausted all the time. But the flip side to that is instead of just managing our time to try to accommodate everything, we have to get ruthless at how are we using that capacity. And that means really hitting the root causes of volume, which are what are the tasks that we permit? What are the decisions that we are making on a routine or regular basis? And what are the distractions that are taking us away from the volume that we really should be focused on? And so when I think about productive strategies that actually get at the root causes of volume, they are strategies to hold the line on tasks, right? What am I saying yes and no to? They are strategies that eliminate decisions, right? How do I create rules, principles that eliminate the number of decisions or, or minimize the number of decisions that I have to make on a daily basis? And how do I put structure in place that is going to allow me to avoid distractions? Mm -hmm. So those are core three. And, and, you know, we can dig into any one of those three that you want. But those to me are the root of how do we actually manage volume as opposed to just accommodate it? Well, yeah, I like that that is a nice set of, of tools that seem to cover the gamut pretty nicely. Oh, boy, we could have a whole episode on them, but maybe give me your favorite tactic uh, amongst those three. Like, this is game-changing and pretty easy for people. Let's talk about tasks. And listen, there's two reasons that we overwhelm ourselves with tasks. And, and it really kind of depends on your, your span of control in the organization. We can overwhelm ourselves with tasks because of tasks we take on ourselves. So, you know, we're just over-optimistic about what we can accomplish, and so we opt in or we seek out more than we can handle, and that starts to create pressure. You know, we can also accumulate too many tasks because they are imposed upon us, right? We get assigned them by our managers or, or our bosses. And so for each of those two streams, and, and it's not a binary thing, usually it's some combination of those two, there's a tactic that I think is, is worth exploring and trying. So the first is... If you are the kind of person that is just over-optimistic and opts into too many things, I am a huge believer in calendar blocking. And I just think the fact that we have 
all of us simultaneously a calendar and a to-do list creates a lot of the challenges that get people to take on too much. Because we look at our calendars and we go, oh yeah, I have space from one to two tomorrow. The issue is that our calendars really only show the commitments that we've made that involve other people. Yes. The to-do list is basically a parallel calendar. It is a parallel set of commitments to our time. They just happen to not involve other people. It's work that we need to process independently. And so I think if you fall into that camp of constantly opting into stuff and then going, oh, crap, like I got to get this done on the weekend, you want to merge your calendar and your to-do list, like find time on your calendar for every item on your to-do list and actually block it so that you have a real representation of all of the things that have a claim on your time before you start making decisions around what else you can take on. That, because otherwise you're just deluding yourselves, right? And, and I think that's where the kind of over-optimism comes from. So that to me is one very practical way to start to get a more real view of what are the tasks that I actually have room to accommodate. If the tasks are being imposed on you, if it's more a case of it's just somebody else saying, like, I need this and I need it by Monday, I think it's really uncomfortable for most people, in particular folks that are a little more junior in organizations, to just say, listen, I can't do that. Like, I don't have enough time to do that. You know, that, that's often something that's seen as career limiting. It's a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation. And so my recommendation on that one is take that out of the binary world of like, I can do this or I can't do it and start to use those as jumping off points to have prioritization conversations, mm -hmm. right? Okay, so you need me to pull this deck together for Monday. All right, here are the other two things that are on my plate for Monday. Where do you want me to rank this one, right? Is this the most important of those three? Is this in the middle? We're not having a me versus you conversation where like you're asking me to do something and I'm saying, no, I can't do it. Now we're having a conversation together around what's the order that I should be thinking about these things in? What are the ones that are more important or less important? Mm -hmm. So those are two separate roads, I guess, to the same outcome, but a little bit different context. Well, so, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to role play this for too long, Dane, but uh, just, if you'll indulge me just a smidge. Yeah. So if you have that conversation with the manager, director, VP, whomever, someone more senior, and they give you an unsatisfying response of, well, hey, they're all important. They all need to get done. What do you do then? <laughs> and I think this is where we want to be politely persistent, right? It's like, totally agree. Okay. So which one should I do first? Right. Or where do you want me to start? And I think the ability to continue to have the discussion, listen, I have to pick one to, to do first and I have to pick one to do last. That's where we want to keep driving the nail in. And actually, this has come up a few times where people are like, well, my manager just won't have those conversations. Like I keep getting responses like everything's important. And this is where I think a big part of managing pressure is my ability to come face to face with my own personal power, right? My ability to connect with self-efficacy that I have the ability to choose what I am going to tolerate, what I'm not going to tolerate. I think if you have a manager who repeatedly over time just says everything's important and you need to get it all done, that to me is a signal that if you have a good relationship with that person, now's the time for some upward feedback, mm -hmm. right? Which is let's have a conversation around what I really need from you as a manager in order to perform at a high level. And if that continues, like to me, who on earth wants to work for someone who refuses to have a productive conversation with them about what's most important around here. Yeah. So I really do think that that the end of that conversation for me is if like over time, I have a boss who refuses to help me prioritize my work, get out of Dodge, like find a better place to work, find a better manager. That sounds flippant, but I genuinely think that that should be a very basic expectation of a leader that they can do that. Yeah, certainly. And you're right. And, and I think like there may be rare moments where it's true. 
everything is important <laughs> yeah. and everything is urgent at the same time. And I think a great manager would be like, hey, Dane, I'm sorry. This is a terrible week. <laughs> and unfortunately, it seems like what's going to be necessary is that you work until midnight several days in a row. It's unfortunate that we're here now, but we are. And I'd like to figure out how to get you some time off in the next week <laughs> yep. to make up for it. But darn it, this is what the reality is This on this particular week. I mean, I think that both things can be true, that everything must be done and your manager could be cool and humane about the implications of that. Listen, I think that's a great point, Pete. There are busy periods in every job, right? If it's tax season and you're an accountant, like, it, you know, legally, everything has to get done by a certain date. It's not like there's a lot of wiggle room there, right? We got to do everybody's taxes by the time they need to file them. So I totally agree with you. And I think the main thing for me is it becomes a conversation, right? So what I liked about what you just laid out there is I'm having a discussion as a manager to paint a really clear picture here of this is a period in time in which we're going to be asking a lot of you, here are the commitments that I'm making around that, right? That this is going to be time bound, that I'm going to work with you productively to find some time to recover, and that I see and appreciate the extra effort that you're putting in here, right? It actually matters. That to me is very different than a leader who simply says, like, everything's important, like, get it all done on Monday and have it on my desk. So I, I totally agree that those two things can coexist for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, so while we're talking still on the, the managing pressure, uh, if it's, I guess, maybe the problem side of things, if you will, you have a very compelling teaser bullet for your book that we can reduce tension, sleep better, and have more energy so that you can meet challenges head on. Sounds like we've figured out a few levers for, for some of that, but tell me, any other pro tips on the sleeping better and enhancing energy side of things? Yeah, I think the, and this comes from the subtitle of the book, which is, you know, why pressure isn't the problem, it's the solution. And I think the thing that we want to recognize about pressure is that really pressure is just a word that we use to label a ball of energy. Hmm. Pressure is energy. It's, you know, when you look at physiologically what happens to our body under pressure, it's adrenaline, it's cortisol, it's, you know, muscle tension, it's faster blood flow, more oxygen, like it's just energy. And I think, you know, that energy can be productive if it's channeled appropriately. Certainly many of us who have had kids, you know, what is it that allows you to be an empathetic and patient human being on no sleep when you feel like you're screwing everything up? It's, you know, it's the energy that, that accompanies the pressure that you feel. And so I think that pressure can be a source of energy if it is channeled appropriately. And so if we look at a lot of the tactics that we've been talking about, it's like, okay, how do I take this kind of raw seething energy and actually use it in a direction that is a little bit more productive? And I'll tell you, when it comes to the sleep part, so sleep better, I do think because pressure is energy, if we are carrying a ton of that around, it, it does make the sleep thing a little bit more difficult, right? And so our ability to pulse, right, to channel and allow the energy from pressure to help us perform, but then to be able to get into a state where the energy dissipates, I think that's really important. And this to me goes to the flip side of what we were talking about with uncertainty. So we talked a lot in uncertainty around how do I take direct action to eliminate uncertainty? That's the whole notion of finding your serve. I actually think one of the, the failure modes that high performers get into is because direct action can be so effective in peak pressure moments, it becomes the default mode of action. We try to just take action on everything. 
And one of the, the certainties of life is that we cannot eliminate all uncertainty. We are all on our way to both triumphs and tragedies and everything in between that we cannot foresee, we cannot predict, we cannot prevent. And so a big part of the sleep better at night for me is we got to recognize when it comes to uncertainty that yes, we need to act to tame uncertainty where we can. We also have to be able to get to a place where we can embrace the uncertainty that we can't tame. Mm -hmm. And for that, that's really a bit of a mindset thing. And it's a mindset, you know, as I talk to people that are really good at this, who just seem to be able to come to peace with the fact that there is uncertainty. It's really about cultivating two things. The first is I have to get to a place where I accept that the future is both unknown and unknowable, right? I have to get to a place where I can accept that I cannot control the future, right? No matter how hard I try. And actually, a lot of the stories that I heard from high performers were like about bitter battles that eventually reconciled with them realizing that they couldn't control everything. But paired with that belief is an almost it almost feels like a bit of a paradox, but we have to pair that belief that the future is uncertain and unknowable with the belief that everything will work out as it should in the end. Mm -hmm. And that belief is really about having a patient faith in the future. And I think it's that one in particular that A, is harder to get to in a period like COVID, and B, is the one that actually allows you, you know, if you go right back to the, the question, that's what allows me to get to sleep at night, right? Is I can get genuinely to a place where I go, you know, at the end of the day, things will work out. And I think that, you know, the critical distinction here for me on this one, and I get pushed a lot on this one, both by people who read early drafts of the book and, and people whose opinion I really trust, who said, you know, listen, things don't always work out. And that's true. Right. There are lots of situations where, you know, we don't get the Hollywood redemptive ending. We don't get the outcome that we wanted. And yet I talked to hundreds of people about the most pressure they've ever been under. And without fail, they talk about how the situations worked out. Right. They talked about the fact that they, you know, they learned something about themselves that was really useful later on. They built confidence that they never had before. It forced them to make a tough decision that they'd been delaying. It brought them closer to other people. It uncovered an inner strength that they weren't aware of, right? Like they inevitably talk about how, even if it didn't go the way they expected, it worked out. And so I think the really important part for me here is we have to get to a place where we don't lose faith that things will work out in the end while being open to being surprised by how they work out. Like opening ourselves up to the fact that it might work out a little bit differently. And so I think that's what makes uncertainty so challenging, Pete, is it's this double-edged sort of, I got to find my serve and act aggressively where I can to limit uncertainty. And I've got to get to this place where I go, I can't control everything. And that's okay, because it's going to work out the way it should in the end. That's where the ability to kind of sleep a little better at night comes from. Yeah. Well, thank you. That, that's powerful stuff. And, and I would like to hear, when it comes to pressure being the solution. You mentioned more records are broken at the Olympics than anywhere else. And you said it's because of the pressure. And I mean, you actually work with Olympians. So, I mean, you would know, <laughs> I guess my first thought was, well, is it because of the pressure or is it because they've precisely timed all of their training to peak at this moment when, you know, the gold is on the line. And so I guess there's probably both our drivers, but tell us how can we in a pressure filled moment, do extraordinary, exceptional things above and beyond what we're capable of during normal circumstances. Yeah, and I, I think you got there. It, it is a bit of an and, right? I, you know, I think when you're trying to be the, the absolute best 
in history at something. It has to be a combination of both. I have trained in a way that I am going to be at my peak when it matters most. And I have to be able to take advantage of the energy that is going to accompany performing on the Olympic stage. It, it is just a different thing than other stages. Uh, there is a different level of scrutiny. There's a different level of importance. There is a different level of volume. So when you talk to elite athletes, they will talk about the pressure that accompanies an Olympic performance. And, and I think this is one of the misconceptions that some people have about pressure, which is that getting quote-unquote good at pressure is about eliminating that feeling of profound discomfort that accompanies pressure. Mm. That's not the case. You talk to anybody, I don't care who they are, they will tell you that this stuff is unbelievably uncomfortable. Wayne Helliwell, who's a great sports psych uh, up in Canada here, he talks about this notion that you know it's not about getting rid of the butterflies, it's about getting them to, to fly in formation. Pressure is uncomfortable. When we are in peak pressure moments, it is not a place that is particularly enjoyable. So many Olympians I talk to will talk about the 10 minutes, the 30 minutes before, they're going, why do I do this? Why do I put myself through this? Like they're fantasizing about just escaping from the pool or like it's an uncomfortable experience. And the energy that makes it so uncomfortable, if I can get control over, okay, how am I framing this from an importance perspective? Right? Am I able to both see that this matters to me and recognize that this isn't a referendum on my life? Like this doesn't determine whether I'm a failure as a person or not. Can I take direct action? Do I feel like I've done everything I can to control what I can control? And have I got myself to a place where I can accept that there is uncertainty that I can't tame, that I might fall, that a competitor might just happen to peak that day? And if I ruthlessly controlled the volume that could distract me from my performance, right? Have I cleared out all the distractions that could take me away from, you know, when I've done those three things, that's what gets me in a position where the butterflies can fly in formation, right? I still feel that way, but I go in with confidence as opposed to overwhelm. And that's when things click, when we listen to people describe those experiences. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And so then if we're not getting on an Olympic stage, but we're feeling the pressure, are there any particular actions or practices or uh, reframes that are super effective in terms of accessing the, the superpowers? So I said a little earlier, you know, the attention is like a spotlight. I think there's the best way to think about getting good at pressure is to think about attentional control, which is at the end of the day, my ability to direct that spotlight, to not have the spotlight just direct me, like I'm just beholden to whatever catches my attention and, and I can't act on it. When we train that ability to direct the spotlight of our attention, that's when we start getting good at pressure. And as we discussed, sometimes that is about, I got to put the spotlight on, why does this really matter to me? Other times I got to direct the spotlight to what's actually not important about this to me. Sometimes I got to direct the spotlight to what can I control? What's my serve? Other times I got to direct the spotlight to what is the uncertainty that I can't tame? And the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, this is going to work out. So that attentional control is really at the heart of this for me. And the best way to redirect the spotlight is questions. Questions are attentional anchors. So peppered throughout the book are just what are the questions that I've heard from people that really work for me, but also work for others. So those are questions like what's not at stake? What's my serve in the situation? Right? What's my average? What can I count on here? We want to have our own bank of what are the little attentional cues that work for me personally to direct that spotlight in a way that's productive, right? To get me anchored on something that's going to actually help under pressure as opposed to uh, lead me down the garden path. 
And so my most practical advice for listeners is to start to note, I use the ones that I've just said as a starter list, but gather the questions as you go that help you when you're moving into your peak pressure moments, because those questions are like little nuggets of gold. The little attentional anchors that put you at your best, those are the things that you want to carry and start to embed in your routines as you're heading into high pressure situations. That's beautiful. I love those questions and the notion of training the ability to direct the spotlight of your attention and questions are, are huge for that. Some of my other favorites are uh, what's great about this mm-hmm. and what's one thing I can do to make this better. We had Dr. Ellen Reed talk about relentless solution focus yep. with that question and it's beautiful. And also that the phrase training the ability to direct the spotlight of your attention, that sounds like what mindfulness meditation practices do. Any thoughts on those? Yeah, hundred percent. I think mindfulness meditation is, it's like going to the gym, right? Every time your attention wanders and you bring it back to center, you're practicing attentional control. So yeah, absolutely. That is a very related practice. And it's one that can hundred percent enhance your ability to do this under pressure. Wow. So much good stuff here. Thank you, Dane. This has been a treat. Boy, I loved so much of what Dane had to say, especially that question, what's not at stake for me here to bring down the pressure when when you're feeling it? And I noticed that, boy, when I get the pressure, I'm like, ah, in terms of I am ready, it's like I'm ready to like, I don't know, like go to any lengths in order to succeed in the thing. But if I stop and say, hmm, what's not at stake here, then that actually gets me a bit more calmed down and creative. It eliminates some of that tunnel vision. So I say, hey, you know what? Maybe rather than working crazy hours, I could get some help. Huh, you know what? Here's someone who would be good at that. Maybe they want to help out. And then hope is on the way. Hope and help. So great question there. And likewise, if you're just kind of bored and not feeling it and checked out, you say, hey, what really is at stake here to bring that pressure back up? So much good stuff from Dane. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've mentioned are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP712. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, Check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 